Welcome to podcast 58 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I am the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. We're delighted to be sponsored on this podcast by wealth manager and private bank Coots. Everyone has an idea of their dream home, but currently the property market seems to be moving so fast and be in such flux that it seems hard to know how to take a definite step towards it. Well, look no further because Coots has an expert team who could look at your situation, assess your needs and then design a flexible solution for you so that the minute you find the property you want, you're in a position to move quickly and confidently and importantly, wisely. No one wants to find their perfect house and then not be in a realistic position to buy it or to be panicked into making the wrong decision. Coots could help make sure you're set up for success by knowing what you could borrow and having your finances in place so that you're prepared and ready to act when you find your ideal property. Visit coots.com today to find out how they could help. A very exciting new play opened at London's Young Vic last Thursday. It's called Best of Enemies and stars Charles Edwards as Gore Vidal and David Harewood as William F. Buckley Jr. It's written, of course, by the hottest playwright of the moment, James Graham. He's not even 40. He's already an OBE and he's shot to fame and stardom with plays like Ink, The Quiz and This House, which was his first major play to be commissioned by the National Theatre and has since been voted Play of the Decade. His TV plays include Coalition and Brexit and Uncivil War. And James Graham now has a huge reputation as one of Britain's leading playwrights. So it's pretty smart of the young Vic to have grabbed this bold new play. It's directed by Jeremy Herrin. It runs until the 22nd of January. And four performances in January will be broadcast live. And here to tell us about it is the young Vic's artistic director, who deserves as much praise as James Graham, because he's absolutely brilliant. Kwame Kweama. Good morning, Kwame. Morning, Ed. Thank you. And I'm glad you didn't list my achievements. We should. It's Charlotte Rice the scripts. I'm and about to so list them. <laughs> here it comes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We have been waiting a long time to get you on. So we're both huge fans of the Young Vic and we have been and hustling. Kwame. Yeah, and you. But you have been obviously unbelievably busy. So we do forgive you for taking so long to fit us in. But for those of you who might not know Kwame, which seems impossible, but there we go. Like James Graham, you're also an OBE, as well as being the Young Vic's artistic director. Of course, you're also an actor, playwright, director, singer and broadcaster. Very well known, of course, for playing the paramedic Finley in Casualty between 1919 and 2004. I'm sure you're sick of everyone saying that. But you've had an extraordinary and varied career, won numerous awards. But today we're here to talk about the Young Vic and what's coming up. So start by telling us all about... James's new play. James's play is brilliant. That's number one. Um, and I say that not as the artistic director, but as a rather envious playwright. When I got the gig at the at the Young Vic, actually within about three days, I was doing a panel and James was on that panel. And uh, and he and I were talking. I was like, James, I've got the gig. You know, what would you like to write? And he said, I don't know. And I said, listen, do you know the movie Best of Enemies? And he was like, oh my God, it's one of my favourite. And I went, should we do it? Should we adapt it as a play? And he was just like, yeah. And he was having a similar conversation with Jeremy Heron, actually, at Headlong, which is our co-producers. So uh, off he went and he started writing. And, and that was like three years ago. And here we are now with this piece that is really about the birth of punditry. It's really about, and in essence, the story is that William F. Buckley to the right and Gore Vidal to the left are kind of marshaled together to have a conversation 
about the Republican and the Democrat, Democratic uh, conventions. And it had never been done before because normally the, the big networks just kind of put on the camera when it starts and switches it off when it ends. But here, because ABC was so broke, they went, why don't we have two very intelligent people speak about what's going on? And actually what unfolds is this almost cultural war battle that happens between two extremely intelligent, but two extremely um, hot-headed and, 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 and yeah, hot-headed and, and kind of invested people. So it's, it's pretty brilliant. It flashes back to Britain. There's moments of Enoch Powell. There's moments of Tariq Ali. There's moments of James Baldwin. I mean, it, it, it's like this brilliant kaleidoscope of that hot moment at the back end of the 60s when the world changed. That's uh, so incredible. Of course, 1968 was one of the momentous years ever because it's what the year I was born actually <laughs> uh, I mean it, need we say any more <laughs> I was I mean uh, slightly poignantly I was born I think uh the day that Robert Kennedy was shot it's hard knowing the time difference as it were but I remember my mother my mother always tells me obviously that uh after she'd given birth to me she wept for the death of Robert Kennedy as I can because my mother's American as well anyway I digress because I love the way you've described it Kwame and it sounds absolutely compelling and I can't wait to go and see it I mean I think what is interesting about James Graham is that you know for example when he presented the Brexit play we all remember Benedict Cumberbatch playing Dominic Cummings that's part, part of the thing that's seared in the memory but he doesn't force a point of view on you you kind of you're, you are an observer but you don't leave watching Brexit saying, oh, I think Brexit was the right thing to have done or Brexit was the worst thing in the world. And I'm assuming that when you see this play, you don't leave it thinking, oh, I'm for Nixon or I'm for Humphrey or I'm Vidal and I'm Buckley. No, no. And, and, and I don't want to give it away, but James has crafted an ending that is so very special. Um, and you're absolutely right. What he does do is he pitches us forward and and almost imagines the world... Um, in the way he would like the world to be, not between the false binaries of left and right. It's 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 quite beautiful. I think it's quite a brave play to put on in Britain because we might all know quite a lot about Gore Vidal because obviously he's you know very out. He's a novelist and we're very aware of his work, but much less so about William F. Buckley Jr. because he was much more constricted to the political sphere, if you like. So. I'm I'm really interested why you think now is and you're you've sort of answered the question by saying it looks at the future. Why do you think this is going to resonate with the British audience now? This play, I, I think we are amid a, a moment of great confusion. That is yeah. that is personally we are that is politically. I think the tumult of the last two years has upended everything that we believe in politically. We've had to re-examine and re-question. And also, I think when we look at the, the spread of social media and, and, the, and how, how powerful that is, well, actually, television was just about to do that, or television news and opinion was just about to kick into that gear in 1968. So the parallels seem very, very uh, aligned. I, 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 and I think the best of art is, is always a metaphor. Um, if you hit it on the nose, it gets really boring. And, and I think the metaphor of 1968 um, is, is a wonderful window by which to look through who we are and what we are today. Um, I do think, uh, 
it sounds absolutely, as I said, absolutely amazing. I can't wait to go and see it. But I also, you know, I was not being fake. We were not being fake in our praise for Kwame because I think you're running such a kind of self-confident, outward-looking, risk-taking theatre at the moment. And you always have fantastic programmes on. So Best of Enemies we're looking forward to. But I know that you've got other stuff coming, like the Tony Award-winning Oklahoma that's coming over from Broadway. So give us a little window into 2022 and what's coming up. Yeah, th- thank you for that. I'm really excited about Oklahoma. And I'm excited because um, I went to see it um, in New York in, I, I think, 2019. And I walked into the theatre quite weary. I was like, Oklahoma, yeah, I know what the sticker says right now. This is a kind of reinterpretation of it. But how do you reinterpret Oklahoma? And the magnificent director, Daniel Fish, and his company did just that. It was a window into the frontier uh, mentality of America at that moment and that time. And again, I go to metaphor. It is a a wonderful metaphor for, uh, I think, us in the West in particular, but not exclusively, how we are kind of re- not refined. We're, we're getting smaller, in my humble opinion. We're moving closer into our and sticking within our own circles and our own echo chambers, and we are mm-hmm. creating our own mythologies. And um, and and I think Oklahoma does a wonderful deep dive into that. And whatever happens, we know the music is magnificent. Mm. But it's like a remix on the music. Not a single word has been changed, just the lens. And that's what really good art does. It says, I can look at this classic piece and I can turn it around simply by contextualizing it. So I'm really excited about that. And then I'm madly excited about the one that comes just before that, which is called The Collaboration, written by... Anthony McCartan and Anthony wrote two popes um, and amongst other things theory of everything and every and two popes is marvelous yeah two he, popes is brilliant yeah, as his theory of everything yeah he's I mean he's, he's wonderful and nearly every time he writes a movie his lead actor gets an Oscar nomination so he's like I mean this play is about Basquiat and Andy Warhol and their collaboration it was a famous collaboration that they did they were strangers they just knew about each other and they were brought together by this dealer to to kind of work together. The guy at the top of his tree, the, the new hot contender. And in this, in this brilliantly written play, these men find each other, not just find what their art is about, but find out really why human connection and empathy is important. And I think at this time, we need those messages. We need mm-hmm. to be able to, to, to look at ourselves and look at our neighbours and look at our friends and go, how can we be our most empathetic self? And particularly as cultural lines are changing all over the place. And, you know, there's language that's being used today that I didn't use or none of us used a year ago. And when I slip, I want people to be empathetic. I want people to know I'm trying. And when young people say, we want a new kind of world, I want we, the older people, to be empathetic and listen and and hear. And so this is a metaphor for, for listening and learning and loving. Now, you're being very modest here, Kwame, because you are directing this play. And uh, which brings me on to, you know, I'm very intrigued because directing is just one of your many skills. And I wonder whether you still love acting and writing as much. I, I don't kind of love acting anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not really that I've fallen out of love with it. it it's simply just about time management. Yeah. Um, I, I, I 
I think, you know, but oh, writing. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I have a, a, a feature film, I think, which will be coming out next year called 892, which I've co-written with a wonderful filmmaker called Abby Coben. Um, and um, so that should come out. And I have a, a, a few other screenplays that are that are due to go into production next year. One with Spike Lee d- directing and, and another about the great political giant called uh, Marcus Garvey. Um, and it's a piece called The Marked Man. So I'm writing a lot while I'm ADing. Good heavens. I mean, that's a massive workload. So what, what else is coming up at the, the Young Vic? You've got loads more coming up at the Young Vic next year, haven't you? Yeah. So, I mean, those are, those are the ones that we've announced I, I, I think, yeah. which is, you know, um, of course, Best of Enemies, and thank you for the, this beautiful plug, and Oklahoma and the collaboration. And that's as much as we've announced. But we also have a brilliant program, which used to be called the Director's Program, which is now being called the Creator's Program. And that serves emerging artists across the country. I think we've got like 15,000 people in there, um, funded actually rather beautifully by the Genesis Foundation. And, and, and really what that goes out to do is that's trying to say to emerging artists, you know, I know in the old days, we used to just see the world through the lens of the director. Well, now, mm. actually, this is about the world that you're now in where you have to be multi-talented, where you have to be multidisciplinary. And in fact, we're calling it anti-disciplinary. Many of the young that, you know, it's not like our generation where you woke up and thought you had a job for life. These young yeah. people are, are waking and they're going, today I'm going to do a podcast, tomorrow I'm going to do a movie, the day after I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And so we're creating a bespoke program to help nurture and encourage and grow uh, the next generation of artists in all of their splendour. Well, what a fantastic note to end on and really good luck with that. And we love the Young Vic and can't wait to come and see absolutely everything there. And and very good luck with everything, Kwame. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Thank you so much, Ed. And thank you again for for, for inviting me and for making sure that it happened. I'd like to apologise to our listeners for the quality of our next recording with Julia Payton-Jones. We're thrilled that our next guest is Julia Payton-Jones, a household name in the art world, having been director of London Serpentine Gallery from 1991 for 25 years, which earned her a damehood much deserved. She initiated the Serpentine's innovative programmes, commissioning, for example, renowned architects who'd not previously built in the UK to design a pavilion that was constructed next to the gallery every summer. She masterminded the wildly glamorous and influential Serpentine Summer Party, the hottest summer invitation in town. And she increased the number of visitors sixfold to the gallery to over a million people a year. What fewer people might know is that Julia is herself an artist. She won scholarships at the Byam Shaw School of Art and the Painting School of the Royal College of Art in London. She completed her master's degree there and her work has been exhibited at the ICA, Riverside Studios and the Scottish Royal Academy in Edinburgh. Yes, and it's Julia's art we want to talk to her about today because after her 25 years at the helm of the Serpentine, she took a very courageous step and set off in an entirely different direction. She famously became a mother at 64, taking on a new job at the International Commercial Gallery Thaddeus Ropak. At the same time, she returned to her roots as an artist and started drawing a visual diary of her life with her three-year-old daughter, Pia. And those drawings are now the basis of a beautiful book, Pia's World. We couldn't be more delighted to have Julia with us this morning. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, and I'm so thrilled and honoured to be on your podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, well, Charlotte and I are thrilled to have you 
on. Your books had astonishing reviews. Hans Ulrich Obrist, of course, who worked with you at the Serpentine and is still there, has raved about it. But so has my great friend and your great friend, Tracy Emin, who said these are beautiful drawings and the book is a beautiful gift from a mother to a daughter. So how did it all start, Julia? Because what I gather, you didn't actually start out with a book in mind, did you? No, definitely not. Well, in my in a previous incarnation, I spent an awfully long time at art college and I've always felt that it was unfinished business, so to speak, when I went into the curatorial world, which, as you know, I was in for such a long time because of the Serpentine Gallery being director. And I left the sort of the practice of being an artist behind. And then I restarted about four or five years ago with two brilliantly clever women who I met at a symposium that the Serpentine organised. And they, they said, well, you know, we do these residences and workshops. And I began uh, and on, on an annual basis to go to Italy for, the, uh, for um, a two-week workshop residency. And then I decided I want to be in the studio every day. And I decided I would, I would make a sort of rule of the game. And the rule of the game was to do a daily visual diary, keep it very simple, and have to post it on Instagram every night. So the, the deadline was 12 o'clock, 12 midnight. I think I missed five days in nine months. And it was during the year of, of the pandemic, when, it, when you know, we, the drawings cover the period when we went into lockdown, came out of it, went into it, came out of it. And they evolved. They were terrible at the beginning. I'm not sure they were very good when, when at the end, but they, 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 they did improve slightly. But, but how did it become a, a book from there? It became a book because I had so many of them. And um, people would say to me, friends would say, oh, Julie, you know, you could, you know, this is such a wonderful present for Pia. And the truth is, you know, firstly, she couldn't care less. I mean, you know, I say, do you want to look at, do you want to look at your book? And she goes, nah, <laughs> not bothered. And then somebody said, well, why don't you self-publish? And actually, self-publishing is really rather expensive. And I always think that that's such a loser's kind of thing. Anyway, I went to my old friend, uh, Franz Koenig, who, um, who ran the bookshop at the Serpentine. And I wrote to him and said, look, you know, do you think these could possibly be a book? And he didn't answer me for ages, like two and a half months. And eventually he said, he, he rang up one day and said, yes, we'll do it. And I said, do what? He said, we'll do the book. I mean, I could not be down with a feather. I mean, the idea is incredibly simple. When people say, oh, I haven't read your book yet, I laugh and say, look, there's <laughs> nothing to read. Firstly, I'm dyslexic, so that's not, you know, reading's not my thing. And secondly, it's probably about, I don't know, 300 words in the whole, the whole thing. So they look, ooh, okay. So that, so, but it was important to have some kind of narrative and get that right. So, I mean, I'm a, a very, very private person and the funny thing about it all this is that you know this was kind of in a kind of way a modest way obviously coming out for me this firstly it was my drawings and what's everybody going to think I nearly had a heart attack every night when I posted them and then what they're going to think and then I decided and perhaps much more difficult than doing any of the drawings was to write about Pierre and how she came into my life and into the world which I did in Vogue and that was traumatic I mean, it was a trauma that I, I, I was asked to do and I accepted the invitation to write about it. Um, but it was, as a holistic thing, completely unplanned, all of it. The only thing that was planned was on January the 1st in 2020 was that I would walk into my studio and sit there until I'd done a flipping drawing. 
that was the only planned thing about it. Well, well, Philippa Perry, the wife of Grace and, of course, and the great uh, parenting expert, has said that your drawings are so full of warmth, wonder and love that she's left wanting more, which is very high praise indeed, not just for your art, but of you as a, as a mother. And I think what's so lovely about your book is it really is just so full of um, that sort of utter joy in the ordinary. You know, motherhood, I, I, one of the things about doing the book... I developed this very simple rule, another rule of the game, which was when I went into the studio, I would write down, the first thing I did was write down, um, I think there were nine windows. I would write down nine things that had happened that day, not think about them, like really not think about them, just the things that came floated to the top of my mind. Then I would think about the images and then get on with drawing them. But you know, as a mother, you will know, the absolute extreme tantrums, you know. The, the <laughs> oh, yes. You know, all the things that every parent knows. It's like breathing. But they're part of the book. There's, there's, there's some, I think I was drawing of me on the moon, or, you know, Pierre having a meltdown. And also there's very, for me, which are here, the most precious moment of the day, which is putting her to bed and also the ritual of bedtime. And this ritual, which actually, as you might imagine, takes a rather long time, is... You know, it's so precious you can't believe it. And no drawing that I could ever do would capture that. But there's something about recording it in a very simple way every day with, with no pretension in a way that is, I, I suppose the word that comes into my mind, which is not a word I've used in connection with this book before, is honest. It's interesting how private a person you are. And, you know, you describe writing about your child for Vogue as a sort of traumatic experience because you've led a very public life I mean as the head of the Serpentine you had to be out there I mean I guess it's it, I don't know whether it's annoying or not that one of the most iconic images of your time at the Serpentine is Diana turning up in the revenge dress I'm fascinated at how you sort of married this very private personality with this incredibly public role my approach was really a very simple one but it was all about the organization the artists that we showed the architects the designers the team, and that makes it very, very simple. And also, it was such a thrilling time, I was there for 25 years, as you know, that somehow, you know, there was nothing more exciting. And somehow, everything else about my life fell in around the Serpentine, was when I left, of course, Adam, you may understand that, everything falls away, you know, the invitation mm -hmm. stop. You, you really are like, okay, I knew this was going to happen. But is it really like this? And the answer is yes, it bloody well is. I'm know? so I'm so I'm so pleased that happened to you, Julia. I thought it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> when I left, I knew Pierre was on the way, and I'd given myself six months um, off, and then I had a period um, of maternity leave before I went back to work at the Gallery today as Ropac. So I was very very lucky. But nevertheless, it kind of feels that you're starting from scratch, even though, of course, you're not. I totally, I totally agree. You have to um, rebuild your life completely. It's, it's, it, is a, it is a very odd feeling, kind of starting from scratch again. Yes, but it's very, very good. Yeah. I mean, it's painful and difficult mm. and extremely uncomfortable. However, mm. when I left, it was like, OK, am I going to stop here? Not, no way. In which case, it's just, it's just a process you have to go through if you want to continue to be a professional and be engaged and do stuff. So on a frivolous point, what was that Diana dinner like? I can tell you. I can tell you. 
And I rang, I'm, I must tell you this hilarious story, and I know we don't have much time. So I rang up the, prince, um, the Princess of Wales, lady in waiting. I don't know why I did this, to say, could you tell me what our patron is going to be wearing this evening? And so um, Anne Beckwith said, yes, I can, actually. She's wearing a short black dress. So I know she can't. This is an evening, this is a long dress. She said, well, she is. So I said, well, she can't. And then suddenly, Anne, getting rather sort of annoyed, I mean, why she didn't start yelling at me, said, Julia, your patron can wear exactly what I know. Yes, of course, of course, of course, I'm terribly sorry. Absolutely inappropriate. What, 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 what was I thinking? Anyway, car drew up, drove across Kensington Gardens, because, of course, she lived in Kensington Palace, and Peter Palumbo was there, and there's a vision, but we, this vision of beauty, I mean, <laughs> beyond, got out of the car with the hand outstretched, you know the picture all too well. Yeah. yeah, it was extraordinary. It was professional, but but kind of simple in a way. And, you know, she was utterly brilliant. She was utterly brilliant. And... And the star of, of, of luminescence, which was incredible. I feel very privileged to the opportunities I've had and, you know, want to expand as I get older. I, I mean, I've said often I want to live to 100 and good health, and that's really the plan. So I've got 30 years to really, you know, to, to, to continue to build on whatever modest success I've had as an artist, and I really want to develop that. But it's not, it's not an urgency, if I can put it like that. It's something that is part of the plan well we love you and uh, we'll see you next year and for the next 30 years on this podcast which is also planning to be going for the next 30 years at least have a wonderful christmas with pia <laughs> thank you so much and to both of you too and thanks so much for inviting me earlier on the podcast we were talking to kwame kwe Arma about the young vic but what we didn't talk to him about was the musical he wrote one love the bob marley musical that's now been rewritten by lee hall as get up and stand up and is playing at the Lyric Theatre in the West End. I'm always very keen to talk about Bob Marley because I worked for Island Records in the 80s when it had aligned with Stiff Records. I was a video producer there at a time when Bob Marley's greatest hits were re-released on the album Legend and we made several amazing pop videos with the director and musician Don Lett. I remember Chris Blackwell, founder of Island Records, very well and also his long-standing right-hand woman Suzette Newman who has been very much a driving force behind this new musical Get Up Stand. We did ask Arinze Keane, who plays Bob Marley, to come on, but sadly he turned us down. Oh, Charlotte, However, you've got a bit did. of a dig in there, haven't you? He, he did, he turned us down. It's just shocking. Oh, no one ever <laughs> turned Charlotte Metcalf down. <laughs> I know, I was wounded. However, as luck would have it, Henry Favour, who is my brother's godson and the founder and co-director of Opperton Education, is currently leading a double life as every night he rushes off to the Lyric Theatre to play a young Chris Blackwell. So rather than give up, we asked Henry to come on and tell us all about the musical instead. And he very kindly agreed. Good morning, Henry. Good morning. Delighted to be your stand-in. Thank you, Charlotte. <laughs> Henry, it's great to have you on. Look, I don't regard you as a stand-in. <laughs> Charlotte has this kind of bitter and twisted uh, <laughs> approach uh, to life. I think you are a person in your own right. And it's very exciting to hear you're holding down two jobs, running Opperdon Education and then appearing on the Western stage at night. But anyway, Lee Hall is a brilliant writer and he's written this brilliant musical as a real exploration of Bob Marley, the man behind the music. And so we want to hear... From Henry, a person in his own right, what our listeners are going to see if they manage to get down to see it. 
Oh, it's a super exciting show. And it really is a follow-on to the Kwame show because you've even got a couple of the actors in it. You've got the same music team, but a redevelopment of the script. And I think it's been a long project to get to this stage. There were plans for this to happen before COVID and then it's been delayed a couple of times. Arinze has been connected to the show for, for a long time and now here we are. It's an absolute live wire show with a very good baseline. And we tell the story of Bob from childhood right through to, to tragic conclusion. And uh, it's an amazing story, story of an idol with a lot of great songs. I think there's 25 to 30 songs sort of sewn in neatly by Lee. And uh, it's been a really wild ride so far. So Charlotte uh, boasted that she worked for Island Records. or <laughs> I couldn't work out whether it was Stiff Records. I remember Stiff Records. I'm just old enough to remember my brother as a teenager wearing a, a T-shirt that said, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck. I still have reason, mine. I still have you? mine. That yes. must be a collector's item. I know, it really anyway, is. Is it really? Yeah, then no, we you was put it on eBay, see what you get for it. Anyway, I must come around and see that t-shirt and bring back childhood memories. Anyway, I digress. Henry, you're playing Chris Blackwell. Talk us through the amazing role that Chris Blackwell played in Bob Marley's career. He's a fascinating guy. I mean, he's a bit of an icon of uh, of Jamaican history as well as musical history. He's actually been to see the show three or four times. I haven't yet met him. But he's involved in the production with Suzette, as you alluded to earlier. And um, you know, my part, my scene uh, when he meets Bob Marley and the Whalers when they're still together as a group in the early stages of, of Bob Marley's career. It's a short scene. It's a kind of like everything in the play. It's a moment in time played out to support the narrative of the wider show. Um, I love the part because he's, I mean, he's a he's a guy with an affluent background who could easily be portrayed negatively in this context, I think. And actually the, the play sets him up in a really interesting light where you've got this balance between a commercial meeting and a commercial relationship between the two of them and actually a friendship just blossoming as it gets going for, for the 10 years of Bob's career that follows. So really interesting little bit. How to pack that into about six minutes of drama is difficult. And then I reappear at a couple of other moments, but we see all these different characters kind of woven into the fabric of Bob's career. And it's it's a real pleasure and a real privilege, actually, to play out someone who everyone knows quite a lot about, but doesn't necessarily know. Are you trying to forge a career in musical theatre or theatre? I would never have guessed in my wildest dreams I'd end up doing a musical. I have never been paid to sing or dance in my life and somehow <laughs> blagged my way through the audition process. So, But did you go I, to drama school or anything? I didn't. I, start, I started with my first agent when I was still at school and um, that was my kind of childhood ambition was to become an actor. I did a lot of work in my 20s, mainly on TV, working for the BBC and ITV, sort of lots of period drama, bad wigs. I'm still working in a bad wig. Um, actually, no, it's not a bad wig. It's a very good wig. I've got a collection of wigs for this show. And um, and I'm I'm loving it. Can, can we just go back to Arinze Keane for a minute? Because did you say he plays Bob Marley from a child right up to his death? He doesn't play the child. We've got, we've got four little boys who work in tandem. There are two of them in the building each night, but one on stage. And so we see this sort of little parallel comparison between the child and the adult. There's actually even an intermediate Bob too who's played, for, played out for a scene as a teenager. And then, um, and then yeah, Arinze. But Arinze starts the show sort of leading a gig, ends the show leading a gig, and, and he's on stage the entire thing. I think he leaves the show for all of 30 seconds. So it's an exhausting two and a half hours of, of running around dancing and singing for him. I mean, I just love the idea of you having this double life, of, you know, being running this very serious tutorial 
fantastic company all day and then running off to the lyric. <laughs> you know, it is, it is exhausting and I'm glad you probably won't see my bags when people listen to this uh, podcast. <laughs> But uh, but it's great. It's you know it's uh, it's the ultimate task uh, sort of uh, trial of multitasking, and I love it. I've got to be at the theatre at five thirty, five forty five every evening. I get a chance to warm up, do some singing, eat something, and then I get going. And I'm home by eleven and ready to tackle the next day. So it's uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll see how I feel in April or May once I've done several months of this. But... And how 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 successful is Oberdin uh, Education? Because if I know our listeners, the chance to sign up to a posh tutor service is probably more important than going to see a musical. Oh, you're, you're sweet. Well, the concise summary is it's, it's really it's a mentoring focused business that try, is trying to do something different in that space by being less academically focused and really pairing people matched on personality. So we have a team of about 250 mentors who work around London and the rest of the UK. There's a separate charity that works in the, in the secondary maintained system that's working across 15 schools around the country, mainly in the Midlands, in some of the David Ross schools. And um, and more recently, we have a tech platform called Disco, which is the place to learn online and uh, and to develop soft skills and, and future future skills, really. So we're trying to channel something in the character space and been doing it five and a half years. It's very lucky that it's in a position where it's beginning to run stably and and I can follow some acting ambitions on the side, but um, but it's a it's it's really my first and and foremost role. And uh, this play is a is a wonderful interlude for me. You never know what the next part will bring. So I'm trying to make How the most exciting. of it. While it lasts. How brilliant! What an amazing story! How fantastic! Thank you. Oh, a huge good luck with it, Henry. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for this week. But go to countryandtownhouse.co.uk to find our sister podcast house guest and just add forward slash newsletter to find the country and townhouse weekly newsletter and the great british brands gift guide thank you so much again to coots our sponsor and do visit the website coots.com and discover if it's bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage credit is subject to status and fees may apply we'll be back next week with our last episode before christmas so make sure you tune in then but meanwhile thank you to all our wonderful guests and thank you for listening goodbye <laughs> <laughs>